All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of the Twimmel AI Podcast. I am, of course, your host, Sam Charrington. And today I'm joined by Bill Vass, VP of Engineering at Amazon Web Services. Before we get going, be sure to take a moment to hit that subscribe button wherever you're listening to today's show. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here, Sam. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. I'm looking forward to digging into our conversation. We'll be talking about all things synthetic data. But before we dive into that, I'd love to have you share a little bit about your background, your role at AWS, and kind of how you came into all this ML stuff. Yeah, so I run about 42 services here at AWS, but I have the advantage of being the AWS for about almost eight years now, and I've run many different things, whether it be things like S3 and Kinesis and other things like that, or CloudWatch. Our team really focuses right now on emerging technologies like quantum computing, robotics, autonomous systems, high-performance computing, gaming simulation, mapping, IoT, edge computing, connected car, those kinds of things. My background, I've been a software engineer my whole life, basically. Started working in 1978 as a uh, an engineer working on, actually on autonomous systems back then, interestingly enough. Oh, wow. <laughs> in in ocean-going autonomous systems. Okay. And then worked a lot of different places. I was the CIO of the Pentagon and the CTO for the Army and CIO at Sun Microsystems. And I ran a, a robotics and autonomous system company called Liquid Robotics before I came to AWS. So pretty diverse background. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Was Liquid Robotics the company that had the small submarine that they used to check undersea cables? No, no. Liquid Robotics did long-term surface vehicles, right? So ah, okay. we won the Guinness record for the first autonomous surface vehicle to cross the Pacific. Oh, wow. Which is a, a big accomplishment for autonomous vehicle. That sounds like quite a feat. Yeah, it was. it went through two typhoons on its way between San Francisco and Australia. So that was exciting as well. <laughs> interesting, interesting. I'm wanting to ask you about the relative complexity of kind of this one complex system versus the very distributed types of systems that you work on now at AWS. Does that question resonate? Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it does. So the robots were, they uh, generated their energy for motive force with waves and they got mm -hmm. their electrical energy from the sun. So every milliwatt mattered. So they basically were little ARM server racks uh, and ARM because it used a lot less power. Okay. And uh, they could also swarm. So they would operate in swarms. And Interesting. But like if you can imagine a diamond shaped swarm of a bunch of robots moving together and changing direction together, sweeping the ocean floor mm -hmm. or searching for things. Or at one point, we also tracked sharks and icebergs and huh. also did oil and gas exploration and uh, a lot of work for the military as well. So these, these were very long duration vehicles, the ability to operate for a year at a time on its own offshore, which is really hard because you combine electricity, salt water and metal along with biofouling, you're like the three worst things you can put together. <laughs> <laughs> and really rough environment. It's interesting. We had a number of people who'd worked on the Mars rover on the team, and they just talked about how much harder it was to deal with the ocean than Mars. Yeah. So it's a, it's a very different environment. But that company is still around. It's called Liquid Robotics. It was purchased by Boeing. Okay to do defense operations and things like that. And then I left that to come here. We were kind of building, we kind of looked at it as the AWS of drones, if you like, because mm. you could get them as a service in swarms and they're a lot cheaper than operating a ship with people on it. 
So, mm-hmm. and they stay out for really long times and go through, I think uh, before I left, we'd been through about 30 hurricanes. And so the ability to have oh, a, wow. a vehicle operate through hurricanes is really unusual. Most ships don't do that, at least intentionally. So. Awesome. Awesome. Now our conversation comes on the heels of the AWS Remars conference. Mm-hmm. where you made several interesting announcements. The ones that come to mind as interesting context for our conversation were Astro, this home robot that kind of runs around your house. I'm sure that will come up. Yes. But also some new synthetic data generation capabilities. And as we were talking about this beforehand, one of the terms that jumped out as really key to the way you think about this need for synthetic data is the idea of data density or dense data. In machine learning and deep learning, we often think about just more data. Right. But dense data seems to suggest that it's not just more data, it's about some kind of quality yeah. of the data. Uh, why don't you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, so if you, you kind of look back to what I was doing in 1978, we were doing undersea autonomous robots. These were the ones I used to do at Liquid Robotics were surface robots in the ocean. Mm-hmm. And we used neural network to help it navigate. And back then, this was before GPS. This was using Loran C when it was on the surface, but when it was under the surface, it was using differential sonar and compass to navigate. Hmm. And the robots got lost all the time. My boss used to call it artificial stupidity instead of artificial intelligence. He was a mechanical engineer, so he didn't respect software engineers at all. So this was you know, one of those, those back and forth things. Got it. And the reality is a lot of the way we build these neural networks hasn't really changed that much. I mean, there's certainly been advancements in deep learning so that markers can be automatically identified and created. And the different types of models and things like that have improved significantly. But the thing that really makes it different from 1978 to today is the massive amount of compute and storage that you can apply to the problem. That's what's made Mm -hmm. Alexa's work. That's what's made autonomous vehicles work. All these things is the amount of density of storage data and the amount of GPUs that you can apply and CPUs you can apply to building your models and training your models. And so one of the big challenges in that is getting enough high quality data to train. And so starting early in our fulfillment centers, you'd think that we would have enough volume of packages and pictures of packages to train robots to be able to identify packages along with being able to do a grasp plan on packages and items. But even with all of the packages that we have, so basically to do a plan, I mean, each time a robot does a movement, it has to initiate a plan on how it's going to use its actuators or move around a room or wherever it happens to be. And that, that's my Astro in the background. He's back there. So, so, so you see the robot. <laughs> he's listening. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he's looking at me right now. Anyway, but I, yeah, I'm really fascinated watching him navigate around the house too. But these plans require the more data and high quality that you can provide, the more accurate the planning becomes in your models. Mm-hmm. And so, even with all the billions of packages we ship, we still don't have enough pictures of packages in enough random positions and items in enough random positions. So. For Amazon Robotics, we initially built a product. It was codenamed B12. Can go into why it was codenamed B12. Like the vitamin? Yeah, well, it started, so RoboMaker was codenamed B9. Okay. And the reason for that was, if you know anything about robotics, you'll know that's the Lost in Space robot, which is this robot. Huh. 
if you remember the danger will robinson <laughs> robot uh-huh. anyway that was the code name for for robomaker and so this b12 was just you know, we did b10 and b12 whatever and so we started this need to generate enough data to train grasping plans for picking things up mm-hmm. and so the way we ended up doing it is first we tried taking a lot of pictures right that's generally what you do is you take pictures with the same density of sensors because you need your sensor resolution to match the pictures yeah. right if you don't have the sensor resolution match then you get a mismatch in the the training models and so when you say sensor are you talking about cameras are you talking about matching the image dimensions and other characteristics with what you're using to train on or are you referring to some other sensor yeah so you want to have for example if you're training an irobot to go around the house which they do with uh, worldforge mm-hmm. they generate that resolution at, at uh, 720 dpi because that's their cameras right yeah so our cameras are 1020 or 4K on our robots. And so we train with those. And then you have to take the train, same training that you would use with LiDAR or same training you'd use with radar. You need to match the sensor, right? If you don't match the sensor, again, you're not going to have the right training model. Robots get very... Right. Computer vision gets very sensitive to the sensor in the loop, if you like. So we have a, another product called Kinesis Video Streams or KVS that we use all over Amazon. And it will stream any frame series time data, uh, radar, LIDAR, or video data. It's how we do the security in all our data centers. It's how the Amazon Go stores work, which is all object computer vision as well. It's how we stream the data off our robots and things like that. Hmm. And so... What we ended up with is just not having enough data to do very good grasp plans. And so we sat around thinking about, well, how could we generate enough data that's very high quality? And so we ended up with this idea of starting to do synthetic data generation. And Mm -hmm. then we found out a lot of customers had this problem of not having enough data. We had one customer who was trying to detect uh, defects in their engine, car automotive engines. And uh, they were training with 300 photos. It's the most number of defect photos they could generate. And they kept complaining that their models were only about 80 or 90% accurate in detecting defect. And a lot of defects were going through. And we realized that you really need about 30 or 40,000 pictures of each defect to really have a dense model training. And you need to have that picture in all different lighting conditions from all different directions. So you could hire someone to sit around for three years taking all those pictures. I'm trying to kind of correlate the example that you just gave is kind of a fault detection kind of example mm-hmm. where you've you've got kind of this clear long tail of defects where you just don't see them very often they're infrequent that kind of thing and I, i'm trying to refer that relate that back to your warehouse example where you've got kind of these billions of packages and you can take pictures of all these packages is it the same kind of long tail effect but just at a much bigger scale or is there something slightly different happening there that's causing you to not have the images you need to train yeah it's, it's the same issue because even with all those images you only get a certain number of images of the package in each position right Mm -hmm. if you imagine a package falling and it falls it can fall in many different positions yep and you just don't get enough images of a single package of a specific size in every possible combination, right? 
Yep. And so those outliers where it would fall in a strange way, it almost never happens. And then when it does happen, the robot doesn't know what to do, right? So in this case, with the engine blocks, you're taking a look at the engine blocks as they go by, and you just don't have enough defects physically you can create with enough images to recognize defects, right? So what we did is we took the CAD, the AutoCAD of the model, and then we used a game engine. Actually, we used Unreal to generate mm -hmm. uh, photorealistic synthetic data that matched the camera resolutions for those engine block detectors mm -hmm. and then trained it successfully to identify defects. And then in our packaging grasping plans, we're generating the same thing. We're taking all the packages as they drop. We actually put physics in it. So you can see if you watch the videos from reInvent them bouncing on the conveyor belt, mm -hmm. and they look like packages. I mean, if a human watches it, they think that it's really packages, but it's just images of packages, right? And it's a, a synthetically generated conveyor belt and synthetically generated package images. And then what we do is we start with the CAD, the AutoCAD for those, and we actually do have an artist in the loop that does the initial work. And then the, we ro roll through an algorithm of an infinite series of combinations that we generate. So we generate literally tens of thousands of pictures of each package falling in each different possible direction. And then from that, those images are then fed into the machine learning model, which allow the robot to learn. And then we do the same, same thing with, um, and that's the Astro again when he heard robot. Anyway, and so when you have the grasping plans for all the items that you want to, or the arm to pick up, you do the same thing. You take like a, a Coke bottle and you take photographs of it from all different directions and with all different amounts of Coca-Cola in it, let's say, and with it sweating and not sweating and with different lighting and all that <laughs> other stuff. And you, you just, it would take you a huge amount of time and effort to do that manually. Yeah. With SageMaker Synthetics, you can just create the initial model and say, generate 30, 40,000 photos, if you like, using the, the game engine generation. And then you just feed that into the model. And so this gets you much a much denser model with a lot more interconnects and allows you to more accurately execute your machine learning. So it's, it's pretty amazing how much, how well it works. There are certain things you have to worry about as far as drift from reality, right? That you have to worry about and things like that. And then we sort of extend that with our world simulations as well. So SageMaker Synthetics is very much about generating both defect or non-defect individual objects for both grass plan and defect detection. And then World Forge is for generating synthetic worlds. So it's the same idea. It's just expanded into a 3D synthetic world. And it's being generated also by a game engine. You can pick your different game engines for it. Okay. And so for this case with Astro or iRobot with it, their robots and things like that, what you do is you choose to generate synthetic houses. So what, what they do is they'll generate a whole bunch of synthetic houses, and then they'll do years worth of testing in those synthetic houses and do their machine learning models and, and training there. And we do the same thing with Astro. We will generate these synthetic houses as well. And that's what uh, WorldForge is about. Again, if you had to hire an artist to do it, it would cost a lot of money. Yeah. You can define all the parameters for the houses. Like you can define different types of furniture, different types of textures, how many bedrooms, how many bathrooms, how many kitchens, and it will spawn out and guarantee that each house is unique. And then you can do an accelerated test where you can test, say, 100 houses and do a year worth of driving around the houses in an hour. 
right? Mm. And do training on that or also do testing on it to make sure if, if they get stuck in a corner or something like that. In the case of generating the houses, is there an off-the-shelf kind of house generation? Like you want some kind of parametric thing like you described, number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms, floor types, you know, and then you populate it with objects. Does that framework for generating house structures virtually, does that exist or did you have to build that? Yeah, we had to build it. It's part of, it's a procedural generation system that is built into a world forge. Okay. And so you can go out and generate different houses. And so you, you can say a one bedroom or a studio or a, a three bedroom, two bath or whatever you want. And then you can pick from assortments of furniture and you can pick for assortments of items to be on the floor and you can pick different wall coverings, you can pick different floor coverings. And then the procedural generation is smart enough to do things like not put a table in front of a doorway, for example, and things like that. But it'll you know <laughs> populate bedrooms, it'll populate living rooms, dining rooms, all of those kinds of things for you. And then you have these synthetic houses that you then drop your robotic model into, and then you run your synthetic training in it. It's quite effective. I mean, when um, the first thing the Astro did when I got it home was to map my house. Mm -hmm. What sensors does the Astro have on it? Is it just cameras or does it have some other sensor? It's got a, a whole suite of sensors. It's got a infrared sensor system, an acoustic sensor system, and cameras on it. Okay. Basically, so that way you can see in the dark with the infrared. It also has a camera on a, I don't know how you describe it, a, basically a pole that can be raised up. So hmm. mm -hmm. if it needs to look over something that it can't see over, it can raise the camera up and look around and, and pull it back down again. Or you have a, a mobile app where you can tell it to go different places and it'll go different places in the house. Or if you're, you're remote, you can say, go look, see if I left the stove on or go look, says it heard something, go check it out. Sounds like mm -hmm. glass breaking, go check it out. And then you can point where you want it to go and it'll drive there and you can watch it on your phone. It's, it's, it's pretty neat. That I just left or, you know, I'm in another on a trip and, oh man, did I leave the stove on that? That one resonated. <laughs> yeah. Maybe to go a little bit further into the, the Astro direction, is it running, it's like a local SLAM type of model for yeah. mapping the house or what's the relationship between the robot and the cloud for that? Yeah, so it runs both. So the first thing it does when you, after you pair it to your phone and connect it to your network, the first thing it will do is it will start mapping the house. And so we'll go through a really interesting pattern where it will start at its docking station and go to the first room, return to its docking station, go to the second room, return to its, and it'll just keep doing that until it maps out the entire house. Mm -hmm. And then it'll ask you to go on a tour and so it'll follow you around. Actually, before that, it does a facial recognition system so it can recognize you. So you go through and do your face from different angles okay. and your voice. So it does voice and face recognition for you. And now it can follow you. And then it asks to go on a tour of the house. So then it goes to each room and then you say, this is the living room or this is the kitchen or this is the dining room. Or in this case, this is the office. And then you can then tell it to go to those rooms and it'll navigate there on its own. Even you know, with my dogs running around, other things like that. It'll recognize staircases to not accidentally drive down a staircase and things like that. It's got a, a vertical sensor as well to make sure it can't do, doesn't drive downstairs. And the wheels are quite large, so it can go over carpets and floor carpets and things like that, that pretty easily. It weighs about 27 pounds. Oh, wow. 
And then it's got a battery lasts all day. It can go find its charging station on its own and charge itself too as well. And it can, you know, you can tell it to go places. It's got actually a drink carrier in it. So you can have it like bring drinks to people from the kitchen and stuff like that. But but I'm betting no grasping plan for opening the fridge and getting the drink. No, not yet. <laughs> not yet. Well, you know, I, I think these things, you have to kind of take them in stages. So I was actually amazingly impressed with how good a job the team did in making sure that it could figure out how to navigate on its own. And and even with obstacles moving around in front of it and the dogs moving around in front of it, it would still, it wouldn't freeze it would, and not hit things, right? That was another thing. Mm-hmm. But you can actually see it doing, it's uh, the same kind of thing as a grasping plan. You can see it do it, its plan to navigate around something. You can watch it stop for a second and almost see the software running as it, it says, okay, how am I going to navigate this? And then that gets stored in the cloud. There's a map that it produces of your house that you can look at on your phone. So it's constantly going back and forth. And when you talk to it, of course, it's a Lex and Poly interface, Lambda Lex and Poly interface that goes back to the cloud to do like when, when I, I mentioned the robotic company, it looked it up for me, <laughs> as you heard. Yeah. But I thought it'd be interesting to have it here with us in, in the interview. I've been having, it's been in here all day with me for other things too, so. Oh, nice. Going back to the warehouse and the defect detection example, mm-hmm. think of this running into the kinds of problems that you ran into, you and the customer ran into. I think of there being a series of steps that you might take to try to overcome that. On one end is maybe the synthetic data. Maybe somewhere in the middle is more of a traditional data augmentation. Mm-hmm. I'm curious, did you, to what extent did you try that? What kind of result you saw with that as a precursor to going to full synthetic data? Well, I think to continue to augment, you really just add, still adding more images, right? I mean, that that's really what you're doing. And, and it's kind of adding more images of the stuff that you, of the, the fat tail as opposed to the long tail. Yeah. Or another one of our customers basically has a robot looking at conveyor belts and picking off bad chicken nuggets. Mm-hmm. So we had to generate a bunch of bad chicken nuggets and good chicken nuggets with synthetics, right? Or another example is another customer that's looking for a distressed parts that are being manufactured in titanium for airplanes. Mm -hmm. And the way they had done that, tried to do that in the past is they would take these $30,000 parts and beat them up with a hammer and then take pictures of Mm -hmm. them, right? And now what they do is they go into the CAD model and beat it up virtually Mm -hmm. and they can do it a lot of different ways and then generate those synthetically and then train on those synthetically so i I think it's going to be quite a boom for accelerating model training specifically for defect detection and for object recognition and grasp plans and then i think worldforge as it continues to accelerate and have more options in there is going to be a huge accelerator for anyone who wants to build something that has to navigate around a house. And then uh, in the future, we'll do warehouses. We did a hospital setting, so the ability to build hospitals, offices, warehouses, and then uh, extending it to outside spaces as well to procedurally generate outside spaces, intersections, and other things like that. So, You talked a little bit about this just now in the case of the titanium part manufacturer, they created the defects via CAD. Mm -hmm. In the case of the other part manufacturer, creating those defects, like how do you characterize a defect? And like, what does that process look like in the general case? So what they do, imagine like in a a sand mold for an engine block. 
that you could take each cylinder and show gaps in the cylinders or anything that causes the cylinder to not look round before it goes into the machine process or any, they basically go through and create these defects manually, which they used to have to do very, so you just never get enough defects usually, fortunately, to train a model on. <laughs> and that, that's mm -hmm. been the challenge. And so the ability to but it sounds like it sounds like there's some subject matter expert there, you know, maybe an engineer or something that yeah, kind of understands the generation process behind defects and can produce them. Is it always via CAD or is it Well, you can also use things like Maya and Blender. Okay. The other 3D tools. So we offer it as kind of a complete service. So if you have an engineer slash artist that can generate the defects for you, you can do that and then upload the models, and then generate synthetics, a few clicks of a button. But we also offer sort of these artists and engineers that are available on demand, if you like, to do it for you. So if you don't have the artist who knows how to do the defect tracking creations, you sit with one of your engineers and the artist will sit and say, well, it looks like this, it looks like that, and they'll have an interactive session of creating those. And is that artist generating or the engineers in the, the case, the user doing it, are they generating kind of static examples of defects or are they yeah. generating some parameterized thing that's a defect generator that's part of this process? Yeah, it's both. Okay. It's both. So, so you can generate them uh, procedurally after you've defined them, or you can generate them manually, if you like, saying here's different defects I want to have on my, you can imagine you could create a dent and move it around randomly, yeah. right? Onto different surfaces, but you need the algorithms to do that properly. Mm -hmm. And then after you've generated those models, then it goes into synthetics and it generates images at all different lighting that match your sensors from all different angles. And then that, that's how it goes and just starts mass generating of the images so that that way you get this sort of mass generation. And then the, then you have now a, a library of 30,000 or 100,000 images that you then can feed into your training model. And of course, that's combined with real images as well. Sure. So you, you've got your, like in that engine block example, they had about 300 images that they'd made mm -hmm. to start, but now they have 30, 40,000 images plus the 300. <laughs> so... Nice, nice. For those folks that want to do the procedural generation of these defects, what kind of tools are you using or what's the interface for creating that? Yeah, so they can log into SageMaker Synthetics mm -hmm. and describe there's choices right there on the console on what they're interested in doing. And in that case, you know, through the console, you get connected to an artist. If you have the artist or the engineer, and you just want to upload your 3D models and say generate, and then you set the parameterization, just like with WorldForge, you'd be saying, I want this furniture and, and these services and this many bedrooms and this many houses, and it'll procedurally generate it. Mm -hmm. Once you have your models in there and you describe your sensor suites, and you can choose from existing sensor suites because there's a lot of common sensor suites or specifically setting up your sensor suites, then you automatically generate it from there. Okay. So you have all this synthetically generated data, defect data, and the examples that we talked about, you combine that with your kind of regular images. And it sounds like the next step in at least some of these cases is simulation. Can you talk a little bit about you know how and, and where you see simulation coming into play? 
Yeah, so certainly if you take a look at the videos from reInvent, you'll see the simulation of the packages falling on the conveyor belt as it's moving, right? And mm -hmm. so, and then the packages, there's actually in that uh, simulation, there's physics as well. So the packages bounce. Okay. And so you're defining your part of the setting up the simulation is you're defining the physics of it, right? In WorldForge, when you're generating worlds or in RoboMaker, you're defining with WorldForge, the houses that you want to do, and the physics is Earth physics, right? Mm -hmm. We worked with JPL on the Mars rover, for example, with RoboMaker. In that case, we made a Mars landscape, and you've got Mars physics involved in that landscape with RoboMaker. And then we're currently working uh, the lunar outpost, training the lunar rover to drive all over the moon. And so we've built moon landscapes, right? Uh, we have another company that uses RoboMaker. Actually, it's a it's a, a UV sterilization robot that goes around hospitals, UV sterilizing surfaces. So it's got to hmm. not do that when people are around because UV light's bad for your eyes. Yeah. And it has to know how to, for example, call an elevator, go inside the elevator, sterilize it, go to the next floor, sterilize the floor, call an elevator, go to the next floor. And so uh, what we did there is we created a simulation of the hospital, all the floors in different hospitals that were randomly generated for the, the robot to learn that. And then there's also a space simulator for simulating space vehicles, right? So zero G maneuvers with thrusters and those kinds of things. And you can simulate, say, for example, a docking procedure or those kinds of things. And so all of those are available as different models inside RoboMaker, or there's a, a drone simulation system to train drones to fly between buildings and things like that and land in specific places, or there's a an ADAS simulator that uses some of the core ADAS models where you can take it a bit further and generate synth synthetic simulations for ADAS training for autonomous vehicles. And so hmm. it's a pretty broad range. And, and what we're working with WorldForges and, and RoboMakers just make it simpler and simpler and simpler to do that, right? So that you can, yeah. you don't have to be an ML expert to run a simulation and train your ML models, right? Or, or you don't have to be an HPC high performance computing expert to do that, right? In a lot of cases, mm -hmm. Today, you need to be an HPC expert and understand how to set up clusters and how to, to load batches of your simulation out and spawn them out and manage them and all those other things. Our goal would be that the ML experts could concentrate on the ML, not on the compute. Yeah, yeah. Right, and and so, so getting, being able to import in a 3D map of a city, synthetically generate, uh, say, 10,000 intersections with items, you know, people walking and cars doing, and then uh, simulate driving through that city and simulate going through all those intersections with a few clicks of a button it would be our goal. And then you can use that to train your models synthetically, and you can use it to test your models and test your algorithms out in these virtual worlds. And then when you're happy with them, then you can use our over-there update to push it out to the vehicles or the robots or the hmm. drones or whatever it is you're, you're working with. Are the simulations are you using or interfacing with off-the-shelf simulators that someone might already use for robotics, or is it kind of custom-built stuff that's part of WorldForge and these other platforms? So it's a little of both. Okay. So for example, in a RoboMaker, you can choose Whoa. Unity or Unreal or Gazebo as your engines, right? Mm -hmm. And pretty soon O3DE as well. Okay. And then for the robotic arms, you could choose a Drake simulator, for example. And then 
you know, there's a number of really good autonomous vehicle simulators that are already out there that you can choose from as well. Mm -hmm. So you can choose your rendering engine, you can choose your simulator, you can choose your physics engine. Okay. And then you choose your your environments, like generate the houses or generate the streets or generate whatever you're you're interested in. And then you can say things like, well, I want to do 100 houses and I want to do a year's worth of training. And what it'll do is figure all, all those parameters out. It'll just spawn out that amount of compute necessary to do it mm-hmm. right and then if you have have the robot for example get stuck in a corner you'll get a cloud watch alarm that it's stuck in a corner and then you can go physically watch that one simulation and see where your lines of code are, are, are going through and what's wrong with your model for example and then you can make changes and then just do it again and do it again until you're happy with it so it gives you a lot of flexibility to do that all automatically oh very cool you know, right now people would actually build physical environments and they'd physically load stuff out of their robot in the past and they'd physically uh, run the simulations and then they'd see the robot get stuck and then they, so it would be clock time that they would do, right? And so clock time mm-hmm. takes forever to do this. You know, you just can't, if you look at like one of our customers, Aurora, who's doing autonomous systems, uh, ADAS type applications, they drive tens of millions of miles every day in the simulation. Yeah. Right. And you just can't physically do that in the real world. There's just thousands of cars driving thousands of miles every day to do that, which is just not practical or economic or anything. So I think the only way we're going to get to the level of autonomy using machine learning that we need is these synthetic simulated environments. And then it extends even further as you start, people start looking at, at business simulations and machine learning related to that. Mm-hmm. So training simulations of logistic systems so that you can train the models to adapt to changes and unpredictable changes in your logistic system. You can imagine that it's also factory digital twins, like with our twin maker product, where you can, today you can simulate individual components, and then you can apply machine learning to that, like look out for equipment to look for anomalies. Or you can apply, say, Siemens or ANSYS simulations to each of those individual components where they have the local expertise or the manufacturer simulation for the compressor or the motor or whatever it is in your factory. In the future, you'll be able to, since we know the relationship between those and we have the real-time data coming into TwinMaker, uh, you'll be able to simulate the entire factory process to begin to optimize it and apply machine learning at a much broader range than people do today, I think. And so it's an exciting time. It's like even you see in in high performance computing more and more and, you know, fluid dynamics calculations and things like that, we're doing things like training models on outcomes for different three-dimensional surfaces and then not having to do the computational dynamics for it, fluid dynamics for it. We can skip that because the models can start to predict the outcome as you change the surface without having to recalculate everything. And so that's going to be a transformation, I think, in combining high-performance computing and machine learning and these simulations. I think it all begins to build on itself as we virtualize the world, Mm -hmm. whether it be SageMaker Synthetics or WorldForge or RoboMaker or, or TwinMaker and all these ML models integrated with them. That's how things are going to continue to advance, in my, in my opinion, all this 3D processing that's necessary to do that, physics that are necessary to do that. Awesome. Awesome. Well, Bill, thanks so much for taking the time to share a bit about your recent news and what you've been up to. Very fascinating stuff. Yeah, well, thank you. Thanks for having me. Awesome. Thanks. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit TwimmelAI.com. Of course, 
If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.